This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. We know nothing with any certainty of the acts of our executive at Washington, who are to go out and who to come in. We Federalists are much in the situation of the party of Bolingbroke and Harley after the Treaty of Utrecht, completely and totally routed and defeated. We are not yet attained by act of Congress, and I hope shall not fly out into rebellion. No party that ever existed knew itself so little or so vainly overrated its own influence and popularity as ours. None ever understood so ill the causes of its own power or so wantonly destroyed them. A group of foreign liars, encouraged by a few ambitious native gentlemen, had discomfited the education, the talents, the virtues, and the property of the country. The reason is we have no Americans in America. The Federalists have been no more Americans than the Antis. John Adams' departure from the national stage in March 1801 has been remarked by many historians as a pivotal point in American history. But for the man himself at the time, though he felt the weight of the change, he also felt the uncertainty of what it meant for his nation, his causes, his family, and himself. Welcome, dear friends, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this, the penultimate episode closing out the life of John Adams. To get to some housekeeping first, as I've discussed before, I'm planning on doing a Q&A episode as a final farewell to POTUS 2. After this episode, you'll have about a week, deadline Wednesday, July 10th, 2019, to get your questions in either via email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can send them via social media to Presidencies on Facebook, Presidencies 8-9 on Twitter, or Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, on Instagram. As I've been in the midst of wrapping up Adams and getting Jefferson going, I haven't had a chance to do a new special video episode yet, but I'm planning to get back to that sooner rather than later. Until then, you can find all the episodes on Vimeo at vimeo.com forward slash presidencies. A few weeks back, I did an interview with Jarrett Cohen, author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, which was very informative. That video is up on the Vimeo channel if you haven't seen it yet. Finally, the new series on the Jefferson presidency is nearly upon us. As I've got some travel coming up, the first episode of that series will not release until August. I assure you, though, my travel is history-related. I'll be attending the Shear Conference, that's the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, on July 18th through 21st in Boston. Then I'll be flying from there to Reykjavik, Iceland for a week. I'm hoping to have some special content for all of you from this travel, including more history knowledge to share, as well as photos and videos. And we'll be sharing what I can on social media, as well as at the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Com. With that said, let's rejoin Mr. Adams as he makes his way back to Quincy in March 1801. John Adams, the first U.S. president to oversee a transition from one administration to the next, 
had also become the first U.S. president to be defeated for re-election. With this earlier-than-planned retirement from public life, the question for Mr. Adams, as he put to Cotton Tufts after he learned that he was defeated, was, quote, what shall I do with myself? Something I must do, or ennui will rain upon me in buckets. Unlike his predecessor Washington, who had huge estates to manage, the Adams farming operation was not nearly as complex, and John had to wonder, quote, will books and farms answer the end? I must go out on a morning and evening and fodder my cattle, I believe, and take a walk every noon to Penn's Hill, potter in my garden among the fruit trees and cucumbers, and plant a potato yard with my own hand. If I had money enough to spend upon my farms, I might find employment enough. But what shall I do for that? Shall I go to the bar again? I have forgotten all my law and lost my organs of speech, and besides that have given my books away. If I had them, I might possibly educate a young gentleman or two for the profession. John, in his pursuit of public life for so many years, was not as closely connected to his household as Washington had been. Indeed, as Lynn Withy notes, the adjustment for Abigail to this retirement from the public stage was much more seamless of a process than it was for John. From Withy's biography of Abigail, quote, For a woman of the time period, there was no such thing as retirement. She, i.e. Abigail, had always enjoyed her role as wife, mother, and household manager. Now, she threw herself into that role with renewed energy. John, by contrast, for the first time in his life, had no specific task in front of him. John would be reunited with Abigail on the evening of March 18th, arriving home at Peacefield just as a nor'easter struck, described by David McCullough as, quote, a storm of a kind such as they had not seen in years. Black skies, violent winds, and a flood of rain kept on day after day, no one budging from the house for about 10 days. During this time, a short note would arrive from the new president. A quote-unquote private letter had arrived at the president's house for Adams, and Jefferson wanted to make sure that it got to him safely and unread. As would prove to be the case in other of his post-presidency correspondence, Adams wore his heart on his sleeve in his reply to the president and gave, from what I've seen in his correspondence, to be one of the most extensive expressions of his grief over the still recent loss of his son Charles, which went as follows. Quote, Had you read the papers enclosed, they might have given you a moment of melancholy, or at least of sympathy with a mourning father. They were laid wholly to the funeral of a son who was once the delight of my eyes and a darling of my heart cut off in the flower of his days, amidst very flattering prospects, by causes which have been the greatest grief of my heart and the deepest affliction of my life. It is not possible that anything of the kind should happen to you, and I sincerely wish you may never experience anything in any degree resembling it. He concluded the letter by assuring Jefferson that, quote, this part of the Union is in a state of perfect tranquility, and I see nothing to obscure your prospect of a quiet and prosperous administration, which I heartily wish you. As nice as these words to Jefferson sound, they stand in stark contrast to those that Adams would write Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard a week later, with which we began this episode. However, we also find in his letter to Stoddard a description of the recent Nor'easter as, quote, so old-fashioned a storm that I begin to hope that nature is returning to her old good nature and good humor and is substituting fermentations in the elements for revolutions in the moral, intellectual, and political world. As time went on, 
some of the ill feelings that remained from his tenure in public service would start to give way as he worked out in nature at the farm. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Though the spring would find Adams writing to his old friend Richard Cranch that, quote, the farmer of Stony Field has enjoyed himself better since he assumed that honorable station than he ever did before as a member of Congress, minister abroad, or vice president or president of the United States. He did admit that, quote, how long this tranquility will continue, I know not. Men are weak. No man can answer for himself a loss of health, a family misfortune, any of the common accidents of life are sufficient sometimes to exhaust the courage of the firmest of human minds, especially in old age. Adams's tranquility would continue into the summer as he learned in mid-June that he was a grandfather once more with the birth of John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams's first child a son who John and Abigail would soon after learn was named George Washington Adams. Abigail would write to their younger son Thomas on July 12th that she felt that this choice of name, quote, was ill-judged. I feel that it was wrong. Children do not know how much their parents are gratified by the continuation of their name in their grandchildren. I'm sure your brother had not any intention of wounding the feelings of his father, but I see he has done it. Still, One can imagine the joy of both John and Abigail when, on the evening of September 21st, their long-absent son, John Quincy Adams, arrived at Peacefield. Like his father six months prior, John Quincy arrived in Quincy still trying to figure out what life had in store for him next, now that his diplomatic career was at an end, during which time he would get advice from his parents as well as his aunt, uncle, quote, and other members of the closely-knit clan. While we won't go into too much depth on John Quincy's life during this time, as that will be covered in his pre-presidency episodes, and yes, for those of you who don't know, John Quincy will end up as president on down the line, as we'll discuss a little later on this episode. Just know that John Quincy and his family will settle in Boston for the time being. With John Quincy settled, the question would come back to what John would do with his time. In October 1802, he would begin to answer that question by taking a look back on his life to that point by beginning work on an autobiography. David McCullough writes that this project was undertaken, quote, with some reluctance. But Joseph Ellis, in his examination of Adams's character and legacy, postulates that the project served a role as a catharsis for the former president as his, quote, suppressed rage against Hamilton exploded in the Adams autobiography. It was characteristic of Adams to deny the existence of a seething anger that virtually vibrated inside his soul, not because he habitually lied to others or himself, but because the emotions he felt were too ferocious to allow for controlled expression or modulated articulation. The last thing he wanted to do was to confirm, by the very vehemence of his reaction, the essential truth of Hamilton's charges against him. While certainly not the out-of-control madman that he had been portrayed as by Federalists and Democratic Republicans alike, John Adams was human, just like any of us. And as we've seen over the last 24 episodes, in the midst of great adversities, he would set aside his personal emotions in order to serve the public good. Now, though, 
He was home at Quincy with nothing but time on his hands. It was inevitable that he would find himself face to face with his inner self. While John came to terms with his feelings about his career and legacy, his wife Abigail had occasion to confront her own emotions about how her husband, and by extension, their family, had been treated. On April 17, 1804, Mary Jefferson Epps, the 25-year-old daughter of President Jefferson, died at Monticello. We'll get into more of the details of her death in the Jefferson series. But as you may remember from way back in episode 2.02, the Adamses were close with Jefferson back during their time in Europe in the 1780s. So much so that the Adamses, while in London, had taken in Mary, known then as Polly, when she was eight years old and had made the journey across the Atlantic to join her father in Paris. During Polly's stay in London, as noted by Abigail's biographer Woody Holton, quote, the two had forged a bond more powerful than politics. Abigail in May 1804 overcame, quote, the wall that had arisen between the Adamses and Jefferson and picked up her pen to write to the grieving president. As she revealed to Jefferson, quote, reasons of various kinds withheld my pen until the powerful feelings of my heart have burst through the restraint and called upon me to shed the tear of sorrow over the departed remains of your beloved and deserving daughter, an event which I most sincerely mourn. As someone who had known the loss of an adult child only a few years prior, she could relate and wish to ensure him that he had the sympathy, quote, of her who once took pleasure in subscribing herself your friend. Jefferson replied a few weeks later that his daughter, quote, to the last, on our meetings after long separations, whether I had heard lately of you and how you did, were amongst the earliest of her inquiries, and that, quote, the friendship with which you honored me has ever been valued and fully reciprocated. And although events have been passing, which might be trying to some minds, I never believed yours to be of that kind, nor felt that my own was. Now, if he had wrapped up his letter there, all might have gone well, and perhaps this would have been a mend to the rift between the residents of Peacefield and the third president. However, Jefferson went on to say, quote, that one act of Mr. Adams's life, and one only, ever gave me a moment's personal displeasure. I did consider his last appointments to office as personally unkind. So you remember last episode how I mentioned the myth that Adams was sitting around on his last day in office furiously trying to fill every position that he could with Federalists? Well, that myth came from Democratic Republicans. And as we'll see in the episodes on Jefferson's presidency, Jefferson had bought into this and still a few years later felt that it was a personal affront that Adams had filled government posts with, quote, my most ardent political enemies, from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected, and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine. Um, Mr. Jefferson, aren't you forgetting that you were the one who put Philip Furneaux on the payroll of the State Department to open up an opposition paper attacking Washington while you were his Secretary of State? But I digress. Holton generously offers that, quote, Perhaps Jefferson's ongoing shock at the loss of his daughter clouded his memory of his correspondent, for he should have known that Abigail would be unable to leave such serious charges against her husband unanswered. With this would begin a back and forth between the former first lady and the current president over the next five months. And as pointed out by Holton of the letters in this correspondence, quote, None after the first two even mentioned the young woman whose death had provoked their resumption of correspondence. Finally, on October 25th, Abigail had had enough. 
She started her letter by explaining that, quote, When I first addressed you, I little thought of entering into a correspondence with you upon political topics. I will not, however, regret it, since it has led to some elucidations and brought on some explanations which place in a more favorable light occurrences which had wounded me. Having once entertained for you a respect and esteem, founded upon the character of an affectionate parent, a kind master, a candid and benevolent friend, I could not suffer different political opinions to obliterate them from my mind, and I felt the truth of the observation that the heart is long, very long, in receiving the conviction that is forced upon it by reason. Affection still lingers in the bosom, even after esteem has taken its flight. After addressing a few points in particular, she wrapped up her letter by saying that, quote, Time, sir, must determine, and posterity will judge with more candor and impartiality, I hope, than the conflicting parties of our day. What measures have best promoted the happiness of the people? What raised them from the state of depression and degradation to wealth, honor, and reputation? What has made them affluent at home and respected abroad? And to whomever the tribute is due to them, may it be given. I will not, sir, any further intrude upon your time, but close this correspondence by my sincere wishes that you may be directed to that path which may terminate in the prosperity and happiness of the people over whom you are placed by administering the government with a just and impartial hand. Now that she had concluded, there was no opportunity for this correspondence to result in a sealing of the breach between them. Abigail let John know that she had been corresponding with President Jefferson over the past few months. John added in a postscript to Abigail's October 25th letter to Jefferson that, quote, The whole of this correspondence was begun and conducted without my knowledge or suspicion. Last evening and this morning, at the desire of Mrs. Adams, I read the whole. I have no remarks to make upon it at this time and in this place. Whatever feelings John had about Jefferson, in the writing of his autobiography and in personal letters written during the Jefferson presidency, he reveals his anger towards Alexander Hamilton for his role in attacking and undermining his efforts as president. Adams described Hamilton as, quote, a bastard brat of a Scotch peddler who lived constantly, quote, in a delirium of ambition and as, quote, a Creole Bolingbroke, born on a speck more obscure than Corsica, as ambitious as Bonaparte, though less courageous, and, save for me, would have involved us in a foreign war with France and a civil war with ourselves. Even Hamilton's demise after being shot in a duel in July 1804, and yes, there will definitely be more about that in the next series, would not cool Adams's fury. He wrote that he felt no reason, quote, to suffer my character to lie under infamous calumnies because the author of them, with a pistol bullet through his spinal marrow, died a penitent. Hamilton, however, would not be the only one criticized in Adams' autobiography. As historian Joseph Ellis wrote, quote, Tom Paine ranked second only to Hamilton in Adams' version of the American Rogues Gallery, with Adams describing him as, quote, a disgrace to the moral character and understanding of the age, and, quote, the satyr of the age, a mongrel between pig and puppy, begotten by a wild boar on a butch wolf. Benjamin Franklin, though mostly getting positive comments in Adams' memoirs, didn't completely escape from his former colleague's critique. Adams noted that Franklin's reputation as, quote, a great philosopher, a great moralist, and a great statesman is questionable. 
His main beef with Jefferson in his autobiography was over the legacy of the Declaration of Independence. Adams scoffed at it as, quote, a coup de théâtre and asserted that the real work of independence was done behind the closed doors of the Second Continental Congress. In that body, Adams noted that, quote, during the whole time I sat with him, i.e. Jefferson, in Congress, I never heard him utter three sentences together. Indeed, he felt that his resolution, which passed on May 15, 1776, which we discussed back in episode 2.02, and which had called on the colonies to develop new governments to displace the colonial infrastructure, was the true quote-unquote Declaration of Independence rather than Jefferson's document. Now that Adams had some time to settle into his retirement, his mind was increasingly turning towards defending his legacy, and he would, in 1805, find it being attacked from an unexpected quarter. Mercy Otis Warren had been a friend of the Adamses for nearly half a century when her History of the American Revolution was published. Though they had been aware since their arrival back in Europe and John's tenure as vice president that their political views had been drifting further apart, it still came as a disappointing shock to the Adamses when they read their friend's work and found that she had wrote of John that he had been, quote, beclouded by a partiality for monarchy by living long near the splendor of courts and courtiers and asserted that, quote, Mr. Adams's passions and prejudices were sometimes too strong for his sagacity and judgment. As noted by McCullough, Warren, quote, singled out Adams as one of those who had betrayed the revolution. Either Adams did not read it immediately, or he took some time to digest it, as it wouldn't be until July 1807 that he would actually write to Warren to make his defense. This would prove to be not just a cursory or general defense. Rather, Adams would cite her work with references to page numbers and answer one specific charge or attack after another in a series of 16 letters total between the two of them from July 11th through August 27th. Numerous times in the back and forth, before Warren could respond, Adams would write two or three letters adding in some more points. He warned her in his first letter that, quote, I shall observe no order in selecting the passages, but take them up as they occur by accident. But she soon commented that, quote, I'm so much at a loss for the meaning of very many of your paragraphs and the rambling manner in which your angry and indigested letters are written that I scarcely know where to begin my remarks. As Joseph Ellis commented, this randomness in Adams's arguments, quote, was a bad sign, an indication that the sage was in mid-explosion. No sensible or systematic rebuttal of Warren's version of the American Revolution was possible when Adams felt the furies, like waves, rising inside himself. Indeed, in many ways, Adams was playing into the image that Warren and others over the years had created of him as a man who could not control his temper. But given that he had been made to feel, over the course of years, isolated, unwanted, and forgotten, one can understand why this public insult from a person that he had known for so long and had thought he could trust had so infuriated him. One can almost hear the hurt in his letter of July 30th when he wrote at the end, quote, What have I done, Mrs. Warren, to merit so much malevolence from a lady considering whom I never in my life uttered an unkind word or a disrespectful insinuation? Even in this unleashing, in their correspondence, his response was still measured. For, as he made a point of noting, unlike her, quote, I've still confined my resentment to these communications to yourself. This is not to say that the years that Jefferson was president were all bad for the Adamses. 
Indeed, John Quincy's star was rising in the national political landscape as he had been elected to the Senate in 1803. 1803 would also see John and Abigail become grandparents once more, with John Quincy and Louisa's second child being born on the 4th of July. This one, likely to the joy of the elder couple, was named John in honor of the former president. Meanwhile, despite their concerns for him and their occasional disputes with him about his future, John and Abigail's youngest son, Thomas, married in May 1805, and he and his wife, Anne, would end up living in the house in which the former president had been born. John also renewed his correspondence with his old friend from the Revolution, Dr. Benjamin Rush, in February 1805. Politics had separated the two, as it had many over the years. But, as John put in his first letter to Rush, quote, It seemeth unto me that you and I ought not to die without saying goodbye or bidding each other adieu. Not only was it a happy occurrence for the two to enter into, quote, an extended, vivid correspondence, but this renewal of their friendship would lead to another, more famous correspondence being resumed a few years later. More on that one shortly. The Adams family's ups and downs during Jefferson's tenure would not just be on a social level. A London banking house that John and Abigail had invested most of their savings in collapsed in 1803, leaving them in dire financial straits. Only through John Quincy's intervention were they able to stabilize their situation and retain their home. Meanwhile, their daughter Nabby's family continued to struggle. John had used his remaining authority in his last days in office to try to help them out by appointing her husband, Colonel William Smith, to the post of surveyor of the Port of New York. But rather than being satisfied with this lucrative post, Smith would have his eye on other prospects, including those ideas of South American independence still being promoted by our old friend, Francisco de Miranda. Smith due to his position as surveyor, could not join in Miranda's expedition of 1806, but this didn't stop him from sending his 18-year-old son, William, off with Miranda to Columbia. Though neither Colonel Smith nor Nabby told the elder Adamses about it, Abigail soon surmised that young William had gone off on Miranda's, quote, Don Quixote expedition. Before long, they would learn of the failure of Miranda's expedition. Though his son safely escaped to Aruba, Colonel William Smith, for his role in the expedition, would be removed from his government post and arrested for insurrection. Though Smith would ultimately be acquitted, not only did this incident damage his reputation and yet again threaten the prospects of his family, it also caused no end of anxiety for months for John and Abigail. Despite the various issues that their children and grandchildren would face during this time, John and Abigail seemed most happy when their home was full of family members. Their son Charles's widow, Sally, had come with her two children to live with the Adamses after their return from Washington, and other family members would come to stay for a while at various points over the years. The Adamses would also play host to extended family members, including the young Josiah Quincy, who would, quote, recall in later years that the president, as everyone in the family called Adams, was always lively and informal, full of little jokes and odd bits of information. Children responded to his appetite for life, his wit, and his genuine fondness for them. In a curious way, it was with children and young people that Adams was at his best. In their company, his Puritan stiffness was utterly dissolved. As his successor Jefferson transitioned out of office in 1809, John Adams began what was described by Joseph Ellis as, quote, the final installment in Adams's long effort to exercise his personal demons, all undertaken in the guise of setting the record straight. 
Beginning in April 1809, Adams for three years, almost weekly, wrote essays to be published in the Boston Patriot newspaper. John Furling describes this essay series, which he notes began as a defense of his tenure as president, as ultimately developing into, quote, a general sweeping account of his diplomatic activities in Paris and the Netherlands. Unlike his unfinished autobiography and his letters to Mercy Otis Warren, however, this effort would make its way into the public, though Adams himself noted, quote, that a most profound silence is observed relative to my scribbles. Despite his considerable efforts to defend his record, it seems that the world had moved on from the presidency of John Adams. John Quincy would find favor in the administration of Jefferson's successor, James Madison, as he was appointed as U.S. Minister to Russia in June 1809. Despite John and Abigail's urging him against it, John Quincy accepted the post, and he, Louisa, and their two-year-old son, Charles Francis, would soon depart for St. Petersburg. John Quincy had been striking his own course independent of his parents for some time now, having officially joined the Democratic-Republican Party the year prior, and his tenure in Russia would allow him to be on hand when it came time to join the peace negotiations in Ghent a few years later. But that, of course, is something else to be discussed in detail another time. With this appointment and his departure, John and Abigail worried that they might not see their eldest son again, with Abigail commenting that, quote, it was like taking our last leave. As noted by Abigail's biographer, Lynn Withy, quote, they, i.e. Abigail and John, had come to depend on his, i.e. John Quincy's, weekend visits and had counted on having his companionship for the rest of their days. Abigail would go so far as to reach out to President Madison without John's knowledge to ask him to recall John Quincy, asserting that, quote, the outfit and salary allowed by Congress for a public minister is altogether so inadequate to the style and manner of living required as indispensable at the court of St. Petersburg that inevitable ruin must be the consequence to himself and family. Madison would, in turn, inform John Quincy of the letter from his mother and, though offering the minister the opportunity to return home, asserted that he felt, quote, the peculiar urgency manifested in the letter of Mrs. Adams was rather hers than yours, and that, quote, I do not disguise my wish that the continuance of your valuable services may be found not inconsistent with your other and undeniable duties. Even when Madison nominated John Quincy to the Supreme Court, he decided to remain in St. Petersburg. Despite John Quincy's absence, John and Abigail would have enough to concern themselves with in 1811 as their daughter Nabby began exhibiting symptoms, which would ultimately be diagnosed as breast cancer. At her mother's urging, Nabby would come to Peacefield, and after consulting with doctors and her condition worsened, she would agree to the reluctant recommendation of the doctors to undergo a mastectomy. As noted by Lynn Withy, quote, without anesthetic and without any general understanding of antiseptic methods, Surgery was a dreaded last resort in the early 19th century. John wrote to Benjamin Rush about the surgery, telling him that, quote, the operation was 25 minutes in performing and the dressing an hour longer. The surgeons all agree that in no instance did they ever witness a patient of more intrepidity than she exhibited through the whole transaction. Though Nabby would recover two days after her surgery, the Adams's longtime friend and Abigail's brother-in-law, Richard Cranch, died. The day after, his wife, Abigail's sister, Mary Cranch, passed away as well. 
As noted by David McCullough, October 1811 had a profound impact on both John and Abigail. Quote, for Abigail, it, i.e. the loss of her sister Mary, was the greatest loss since the death of Charles. Meanwhile, the horror of Nabby's ordeal brought a marked change in Adams. The old shows of temper were not to be seen again. He became more mellow, more accepting of life, and forgiving. He had felt during Nabby's agony, he said, as if he were living in the book of Job. Forgiveness was in Benjamin Rush's mind when he started in October 1809 trying to encourage Adams to open up a dialogue with his old friend Jefferson. It would take over two years, but finally, on January 1st, 1812, Adams would put pen to paper and write his first letter to Thomas Jefferson in over a decade. Not surprisingly, as it's not a huge leap to assume that Nabby's ordeal had impacted his decision to take Rush's advice, Adams in his short note prominently mentioned Nabby's, quote, perilous and painful operation. Along with a gift of, quote, two pieces of homespun lately produced in this quarter by one who was honored in his youth with some of your attention and much of your kindness. A witty description of the printed two-volume copy of John Quincy Adams's Lectures on Rhetoric and Oratory that he sent with the note. John also included in his note his wish for Jefferson for, quote, many happy new years, and that you may enter the next and many succeeding years with as animating prospects for the public as those as present before us. Though the time between letters was sometimes measured in months, never again until the end of their lives would the letters stop flowing between Monticello and Peacefield. Honestly, I could spend an entire episode just talking about the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson in their retirement, and may do just that at some point but I'll let Joseph Ellis's words on it tell the tale. Quote, Once begun, the correspondence between the two patriarchs proceeded on an affectionate note, and once completed, it quickly became a landmark in American letters and eventually a classic, some would say the classic statement, of the founding generation. Adams would, of course, outpace Jefferson in writing, with 109 of the letters in the grand total of 158 flowing from his pen. It would allow him to move forward in a way that none of his other efforts had, and, as noted by Ellis, quote, draw out of him fresh expressions of his reason for mistrusting the liberal faith as Jefferson embodied it. Increasingly as time went on, Adams's intellectual life would become his driving force, especially as his family suffered numerous losses. Nabby remained convalescing at Peacefield until the summer of 1812, then returned home to New York. For a while, it seemed that Nabby's family may finally have turned a corner. Her husband, William Smith, had been elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and went down to Washington, D.C. in 1813. However, Nabby began to suffer from ill health again. Her doctor initially diagnosed it as rheumatism, but soon after changed his diagnosis. The cancer had returned, and this time it was spreading through her body. She didn't have long to live. Thus, she returned to Peacefield on July 26th, and lived only two weeks more. John was working on a letter to Jefferson around the time of Nabby's death, and the day after her passing at dawn on August 15th, concluded the letter abruptly, telling his friend that, quote, I can proceed no farther with this letter as I intended. Your friend, my only daughter, expired yesterday morning in the arms of her husband, her son, her daughter, her father and mother, her husband's two sisters, and two of her nieces, in the 49th year of her age, 46 of which she was the healthiest and firmest of us all. 
since which she has been a monument to suffering and to patience. The loss of Nabby would hit both John and Abigail hard, but despite the many losses and disappointments they had faced, John would write John Quincy in March 1815 that, quote, the last 14 years have been the happiest of my life. He was increasingly removed from the day-to-day back and forth of politics, but this did not mean that Adams was completely removed from the events of the world. The U.S. had gone to war with Britain, and his son would end up playing a critical role in bringing peace at the negotiations at Ghent, while John and Abigail, quote, remained informed as always by, quote, reading all they could lay hands on. As the years went on, though, they would bear witness to the death of numerous family members and friends. John's friend, Elbridge Sherry, having risen to the rank of vice president, passed away, as had Abigail's last surviving sister, Elizabeth. Even Nabby's widowed husband, William Smith, did not outlive his in-laws. In October 1818, it would be Abigail's turn to shake off this mortal coil. That month, she took ill with what was diagnosed as typhoid fever and, quote, was told to remain perfectly still and try not to speak. She had already made out her will a few years earlier, so all that remained was the inevitable. John wrote to their friend Jefferson on October 20th that, quote, The dear partner of my life for 54 years as a wife and for many years more as a lover now lies in extremis, forbidden to speak or be spoken to. If human life is a bubble, no matter how soon it breaks. If it is, as I firmly believe, an immortal existence, we ought patiently to wait the instructions of the great teacher. On October 28th, At one that afternoon, Abigail Adams passed away. The concerns of the family after her passing immediately turned to John. As John Quincy wrote in his diary after the news reached him in Washington, D.C., quote, Gracious God, support my father in this deep and irreparable affliction. Despite the tremendous loss, John would survive, but he would for the rest of his life tout Abigail's contributions to their family and to the world. As noted by David McCullough, quote, For years afterward, whenever complimented about John Quincy and his role in national life and the part he had played as father, Adams would say with emphasis, My son had a mother. John would remain active for the next few years. Again from McCullough, quote, He loved company, the house full. He was rarely without aches and pains and suffered spells of poor health. Some days were extremely difficult but he could still ride horseback at nearly 85, and on rambles over the farm or his walks about town, he sometimes covered three miles. He never tired of the farm. He loved every wall and field, loved its order and productiveness, the very look of it. He would maintain a correspondence both with Jefferson and with his daughter-in-law, Louisa Catherine. To the latter, he would advise her on how to deal with, quote, the trial she would face as the wife of so prominent a public man as John Quincy. In 1825, news would arrive that his son had been chosen to ascend to the post that he had held a quarter of a century prior. As noted by cousin Josiah Quincy, John, quote, was considerably affected by the fulfillment of his highest wishes. John Quincy Adams would be the sixth president of the United States. The former president, would not survive his son's term, however. The 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence was soon approaching, and the two men still living who had been witness to it, Adams and Jefferson, received invitations from all over the nation to participate in Fourth of July celebrations. Both men, however, were at a point in life where they could not travel. They had written their last letters to one another in the spring, and as the Fourth approached, 
the health of both deteriorated. On June 30th, a delegation of Quincy town leaders called on Adams and asked him for a toast that they could read at the celebrations on the 4th. Adams replied, quote, I will give you independence forever. When they asked if he would like to add to those words, he quipped, not a word. By the next day, Adams could hardly speak from being so weak. And as the first cannons marking the holiday fired on the morning of July 4th, it was clear that Adams was on his deathbed. When he was told that it was the 4th, he replied that, quote, It is a great day. It is a good day. In the afternoon, he managed to stir enough to say clearly enough to be understood, quote, Thomas Jefferson survives. Though this is often quoted as his last words, apparently later he whispered to his granddaughter, quote, Help me, child. Help me. Before falling silent, never speak again. At around 6.20 p.m. on July 4th, 1826, John Adams passed away at his home in Quincy, Massachusetts. Dear listener, I have to admit that as hard as it was to end the Washington presidency, it seems even harder to wrap up this series on John Adams. As some of you know, my personal favorite president is William Henry Harrison. Part of the reason for that is that he has been so maligned in the historical record that I felt it my duty to help to resuscitate his reputation. In John Adams, I found some of the same qualities that I admire in Harrison. From beginning to end, John Adams was a devoted public servant. Though he came across as arrogant and brash, Adams was an individual who knew himself. He knew what he was capable of and was mindful of his weaknesses and shortcomings. Unfortunately for his legacy, he ascended to the presidency without a precedent of what that meant. As such, he spent a great deal of his presidency trying to break free of the shadow of his predecessor in order to chart his own course. To some extent, he was never able to achieve that. However, his achievements in office were nothing to be scoffed at, though they have been overlooked by the annals of history for far too many moons. It is thanks to John Adams that the United States was able to avoid a potentially ruinous war with France. Adams also gave his nation one of the most dynamic and influential chief justices that we've seen to date. Moreover, Adams established the precedent of how to transition from one president to another that he himself had lacked upon his taking the oath of office. Rather than just having to accept the officers who were already in place under the previous administration, Adams provided his successors with a precedent of firing administration officials who were not serving the agenda of the chief executive. Though this would remain contentious in future generations, Adams firing Pickering would give his successors a historical example to which to point. Adams's legacy, however, would be forever marred by his approbation of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Though he would blame Hamilton for this in his retirement, it was ultimately Adams's signature affixed to these heinous violations of the very freedoms that he himself had fought for his entire life. To his credit, it should be noted that, despite the urging of others to be more liberal in their use, Adams used the powers granted under the Alien and Sedition Acts sparingly. That being said, it still cannot excuse the potential abuse that could have occurred had the Alien and Sedition Acts remained in force, and it was Adams's rival Jefferson who ensured that they were done away with. Adams's legacy was for a great period of time ridden by people who despised him. It's only in more recent times, in particular with David McCullough's widely read biography of Adams published in 2001 that the story has started to turn for Mr. Adams and he is finally being given credit for what he was able to achieve. 
I hope that in the course of this series, you've come to appreciate the second president as much as I have. Though I'm sad to be leaving him, I do have to admit that I'm already throwing myself into work on the next series on his successor, Thomas Jefferson. For those listening upon this episode's release, check back here in August 2019 for the first episode on the pre-presidency of Jefferson. I conclude this episode by thanking all of you so much for listening and for all the support that you've shown thus far in this journey. I could not do this without the support you provide through listening, writing reviews, and sharing information about the podcast with others. As I've hopefully shown the presidency to be, this podcast is more than just the work of one person. It takes a team to make it a success, and I can't think of a better team with which to work on this project. Thanks again, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.